No man knows what he can do until he tries. Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Hello there. Welcome back to Tweet Trends and happy third day of Black History Month. Today we're going to still talk about education. We're going to go in a little bit different direction. We're going to actually cover a lot of different things. So this may be a regular length episode. I just don't know. We're going to see where it takes us because, you know, I can get off track. But I'm going to try to stay focused and get the job done. Okay, so let's go all the way back to the transatlantic slave trade. So you had people that were being taken from the continent of Africa, placed on these ships, and brought to a new country, a new place that they'd never seen before. They didn't know the language. They didn't know anything. They didn't know why they were there, right? And then they're treated in all types of terrible ways, sold to other people, and forced to work. Now, in this whole process, coming from Africa, each person, each tribe, they have their own language. They have their own way of communicating. When, you're, when they were brought to this new land, they had to learn under duress. They had to learn this new language. And if it was pretty much found that two people knew the same language from Africa, then that's when people started getting shifted around. I'll trade you this one for this one because I got to separate them because they're talking to each other. I don't know what they're saying, but it's probably nothing nice because I'm not a nice person because I want you to get out here and get this work done in these fields, make me some money, keep my, my farm thriving, keep my crops growing, all that good stuff, right? So people are be, are learning under duress. Now here and there, there were pockets of slave owners, um, children of slave owners, that were teaching their slaves, the enslaved people, how to read, how to write. But even in learning that, you had to hide it because you weren't supposed to know how to do that. And if it was found that you knew how to read and write, then there was going to be a problem. I believe that because learning to read and write was such a big deal, that that is what made it so desirable for the Africans that were brought to this country. And then their offspring, the African-Americans, the same for them. Because if they were born into slavery, then the same thing was true for them. They weren't supposed to be reading. They weren't supposed to be writing. But somebody made it so. So yay for those few people here and there that said, you know what? I think you're kind of smart. Let me see if you can learn. Because the vast majority was like, you're dumb. You're this, you're that. But, you know, we don't refer to babies as dumb. (laughs) 
But when they are born into the world, they don't know the first thing about a language, about a anything. And it was pretty much the same thing for the Africans that were brought here to this country. They didn't have knowledge of any of this European stuff. So they were like babies being brought here. And yet the fact that they didn't know that was a smudge on on their character and who they were or if they were even considered as having character, right? Okay, so we have established that enslaved people were not allowed to learn to read or write. If, in fact, they did learn to read or write, it had to be a secret. White people could not know that you knew how to read or write or you'd be in serious trouble. So now let's fast forward to the end of the Civil War. At the end of the Civil War, this is known as the Reconstruction time period, where the South is being reconstructed, new laws, new rules, new view, so to speak. In this time period, they actually had to create Reconstruction Amendments, also known as Civil War Amendments. There are three of them, the 13th Amendment, 14th, and 15th. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except, got to hear that word, except, for those duly convicted of a crime. What does that mean? Well, just like you've heard, 30 is the new 20, orange is the new black. Well, jail is the new form of slavery. You send somebody to jail, they're your slave now. They can do whatever you want them to do. All right, so that's the 13th Amendment. The 14th Amendment addressed citizenship rights and equal protection of the laws for all people. Basically saying, if you were born here in the United States, then you are a citizen and all the rights of citizens are now afforded to you. That, that was what is said on paper. And then we move on to the 15th Amendment, which prohibits discrimination in voting rights of citizens on the bias of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. What does that mean? Well, if you used to be enslaved, that's okay. You can vote now. If you are African-American, you can vote now. If your skin is dark, that's okay. You can vote now. Now, mind you, this says nothing of women, though. So women, it still takes us a couple more amendments down the road before we get the right to vote. But that was the case now. So basically, black men could vote according to the 15th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, we're all free we can all do and achieve everything that everybody else can. And then the 13th Amendment, no more slavery. So now let's let's think about this. I was just reading something earlier today about... It was actually about working out, exercising, and eating right. And it was talking about brain behavior that... The things that are easy to you and that feel good are going to be the things that you build your habits around. And it goes to say, 
it worked for this as well. In the eyes of white Americans, slavery felt good. It was easy because they didn't have to do the work. And on top of that, it felt good because it was making them money. It was keeping their plantations afloat. It was doing all the things that they wanted. Therefore, with all of these new amendments coming around and people up north trying to say that black people down here are the same as me and we, we're just supposed to be all kumbaya, that wasn't going to happen. So beginning around 1900, states in the former Confederacy, they started passing these laws that incorporated means and ways for Blacks to be disenfranchised. They implemented poll taxes and residency rules and literacy tests and all sorts of things to make it difficult for Blacks to then be a part of, to be equal, to do all those things that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments said that they should be able to do. It even goes beyond that to terrorism. You know, you've got the Ku Klux Klan that comes in and you've got bombings and lynchings and all sorts of things. They're going to make somebody the example to then scare everybody else into to not doing. And in a lot of cases, it worked. This Reconstruction time period ran from 1865 to 1870. And then around 1877 is when all of these laws that were curbing civil rights of Blacks began to sweep through the South. And we already talked about the different means and methods that they went about to keep people from voting, you know, your poll taxes and the lynchings and all sorts of nonsense that was beginning to happen and erupt because white people did not want to have to accept the idea of Black people being equal to them. I mean, I don't know of any other way to describe that. So just before the 1900s, 1896, the Supreme Court ruled in this particular case, Plessy versus Ferguson. And if you're not familiar, basically a gentleman by the name of Homer Plessy, he's a biracial man. He went to get on a train. Instead of getting in the colored car, he got in the only whites only car. He got in trouble, had to take the whole thing to court. And the argument was that him having to get on the black car versus the white car went against his 14th Amendment rights. And the Supreme Court said no. They voted seven to one against Plessy. The one person, the one dissenter, He was like, "Uh uh-uh, y'all got this wrong. His name was John Harlan. And basically he was saying that the Constitution is colorblind and therefore there shouldn't be anything. I shouldn't have to look for the thing for my color. I shouldn't have to look for the whites only water fountain or the blacks only water fountain. I shouldn't have to look for the door for the white people to go in versus the door for the black people to go in. It's a door. Everybody should be able to walk through it. But that's not how it was seen in the South. 
And so, um, plus he lost. Now, you fast forward down the line almost 60 years, and that's where Brown versus Board of Education comes into play. So in this case, what happened is the the idea of separate but equal was just all over the place, even down to schools. And so where you would have issues with enrollment at black schools where it's busting at the seams and right not far from there'd be a white school where they've got more than enough room, but because there aren't as many students to tend to, you know, the stuff is just being used. However, books would be taken from the white schools after they were done using them and passed on to the black schools. So one, you don't even have good quality books, but two, the information in it is outdated by the time it gets to you. But separate but equal. You have books, don't you? You have a school building, don't you? You have teachers, don't you? So Brown versus Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas, was like an ideal place to kind of point out that, no, this whole separate but equal thing really isn't cutting it. Up to this point, though, there were numerous um, HBCUs created. And so just to kind of touch on that, that that time period after the Civil War, African-American education blossomed. Everybody was eager to learn because now it was okay to learn. So black ministers and white philanthropists, they got together and created these schools so that the freed slaves could now go somewhere and learn. The problem with that is people still didn't want them to learn because they still wanted people to work their fields. And if we let you know that you're smarter than what you think you are, then you might decide you don't want to be a preacher or teacher or field hand. You might actually want to be an engineer or psychologist or something else of the sort that wasn't in, in the sight of what white people thought that you should be doing. So with that in mind, Hundreds of schools were created across the South, and they soon became known as the Historically Black Colleges and Universities, or HBCUs. Now, they weren't started on campuses like what you see now. They were started in random places, in church basements, in old schoolhouses, people's homes. Wherever there was a place for people to sit and learn, they sat and learned. It didn't matter where it was. The fact that they were getting an opportunity to learn was the great thing. So it's always interesting to hear nowadays when people complain about, oh, well, black people have black colleges. But guess what? White people go to these colleges as well. So let's not try to make it seem like only black people go to black colleges. But let's, too, understand that these these black colleges were put in place because we were not allowed to go to the white colleges. So the fact that they are still around, some of them are still thriving, some of them are having some difficulties. But nonetheless, the fact that they're still around just shows that, you know, we respect this institution. We honor this institution and the fact that it was created 
for us, not necessarily by us in all situations, because um, even one of the most prestigious ones, um, Howard University, Hampton University, started by white people. So it, it it's it's one of those situations that, you know, it was created because there was a need. And now people seem to think we're just supposed to throw it out because, oh, it's not needed anymore because we're all equal. Eh, are we, though? Are we really? Rounding out this conversation, in 1951, a group of 13 parents and their 20 children, they sued, and you've probably heard of the case, Brown versus Board of Education. One parent in particular was identified as the plaintiff, which is why it's Brown and not the multiple different names of the other 12 parents. But in this particular case, the goal was to prove that the 14th Amendment was unconstitutional and that schools should not be separate because although both schools have bathrooms and teachers and books and desks and everything, the conditions were not equal. The end results were not equal. And a great deal went into this. There were tests that were performed by these two psychologists, and you've probably heard of the tests, but it was where they had the children and a white doll and a black doll, and they were posed with questions, and they then had to say which doll they felt met the mark for the particular questions. And it was identified that the students, the black students, had a feeling of... um inferiority. And it was basically built off of the fact that they had been segregated. They'd been pushed off to the side and was like, you know what, this is good enough for you. So when you see all of the good things that the other people get to have, and you get to have stuff, but it's not as good as the stuff they get, then the those students began to feel like they were less than, which spoke to education and the fact that, sure, we're both learning science, but you're learning modern science and we're learning the old science that you learned 10 years ago <laughs> because the books are old. It's not equal. It's not fair. To speak to this, um, my mother told me of a story where she had to advocate for my sister uh, my dad was in the military. They had lived in Germany. And when they came back to South Carolina, my mom went to enroll my sister in elementary school or might have been middle school, middle school. And you know how you have feeder schools, a school that feeds into another one. And because my sister is black, the people at this school assumed that my sister came from the black school. So they were telling my mom, oh, well, we're going to put her in this class because it moves a lot slower and this and the other thing, as if to make her feel better to say, yes, I'm putting your child in the slow class because she's black. She came from that other school. And my mom had to let them know. She had to educate them and say, well, no, so let me stop you because if you actually read her record, you would see she just came from a school in Germany. 
my husband's in the military. We just moved back from Germany to here and she's being enrolled in this school and you will put her in the regular class like everybody else and you will like it. <laughs> Basically, that's Reader's Digest version of what my mom said to the lady. And it was like, oh, well, we assumed... Oh, yeah, you assumed because she's black that she came from the predominantly black school. And now that she's over here to continue to draw that line in the sand, you're going to put my child in the class with the other black kids versus the class at the school with white children because you think she can't cut it. Try her and see. She will meet the mark. And she did. So all of that to say that once the ruling came down in the decision of, that was 1954, the decision of Brown versus Board of Education did declare state-mandated segregation in public schools unconstitutional. Did it necessarily change fast? No, we know that that's not the case. Did it change completely? No, because there were still people who preferred to stay to themselves. Um, and then, too, there were school systems that chose not to give everything. I, I can tell you from a personal experience, when I taught middle school back in the late 90s, I taught at a school, predominantly black, and... This school did not have enough books for the students. So in my math class, I could not issue a book to every single student. So I had to get creative because we also had a limit on the paper that we could use in the copy room as well. So I couldn't just go running off copies for every single assignment. I had to get really creative because we were not being afforded what we needed to get the job done. In my mind, I feel like that only makes us better, stronger, more resilient. However, you still have to put your foot down and say enough is enough. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. And like I said in the very beginning, I had a feeling I was going to go over and I did. I added an extra segment in there. But I trust that you find that as a plus, a bonus even, and not a negative detractor to the episode because I had more stuff to share and I just wanted to really, you know, get down, cover all the bases. I already know where I'm going tomorrow with this whole discussion. We're not going to be necessarily on education, but something that I mentioned today kind of struck a chord. So I'm going to carry on with that tomorrow. Um, so see you back here again tomorrow. You know where to find me, Twitter and Instagram at Hey Yvette. That's at H-E-Y-E-V-E-T-T-E. Or just look for the hashtag Tweet Trends. If you like what you're hearing, please, by all means, share it. Let somebody else know. Okay, see you tomorrow.